This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I want to welcome you all. Those, all of you know I'm Margaret Chesney. I direct the Center for Integrative Medicine here at UCSF. I'm a, what's called a professor in residence here at the Department of Medicine at UCSF. I initially joined the School of Medicine in 1987 and served in a number of leadership positions at the university. And then in 2003, I was recruited to serve as the, what's called the deputy director, or the second in command, of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, in Bethesda, Maryland. And then in 2010, in January, about three years ago, I returned to UCSF to direct the, um, the Osher Center. I've been engaged in a great deal of clinical practice and research in what we call mind-body uh, interactions and health. And the focus of my work is on illness prevention, which you could probably guess from some of the things that I've talked about, and treatment. And I'm really trying to help us identify how we can work with people to have optimal well-being across the lifespan so that at any moment, let's, what can we do to be the optimal self that we can be? I'm in pre- in principal investigator of a grant that is investigating mindful breathing as a pathway, as the pathway by which meditation impacts our health, and I'll weave in a little bit of information about that this evening. I'm an associate editor of the journal Psychology, Health, and Medicine, and I've written over about 300 papers or so. I've been uh, president of the Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research, uh, president of the American Psychosomatic Society, and president of the Division of Health Psychology. This is because I'm older, and you kind of collect these as you go. Um, and um, I have received the Distinguished Scientist Award from the Society of Behavioral Medicine in 2010, and the Director's Award in Mind-Body Medicine at the National Institutes of Health in, 20, in 2005. And um, the, oh, excuse me, the and the um, one is Mind-Body Medicine, and then the President's Award from the Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research a million years ago in 1987. In 2001, I was elected to the Institute of Medicine, which is a great honor, but an even greater honor was being called back to my undergraduate university, um, Whitman College, in Walla Walla, Washington, to receive an honorary doctorate. That was very special. So that tells you a little bit about me. And... Uh, Tonight, I'm really honored to to talk with you about overcoming the superwoman syndrome and creating your own personal path to wellness, because our path to wellness has to be really individualized. There's no magic answer. I'll help you kind of think through how you can achieve that. Um, 
And I'm going to also, in this talk, weave together the other five lectures that we've had and help you see how this all comes together as a whole. And in our first week, we heard Luanne Brazelton talk about the female brain. And what she was really focusing on was what you might call our nature or our genetic underpinning, particularly those of us who are female and male, and how, is, how our brains gender-specific. And she talked about how, at different points in the life cycle, um, male and female brains undergo changes, their hormonal cycles, and how those influence uh, who we are. But I would argue that while that provides sort of a foundation, from almost the moment we're born, and some would argue maybe even in advance of that, there's influence from the environment. So there's this kind of debate of who makes us. Is it all nature? Is it nature and nurture? genes and environment interacting across the lifespan. And most of the scientists would agree that while our nature and genes are very important, our gender very important, what really makes who we are are these is this interaction that brings in our education, our, our educational experiences, our familial upbringing, now the influence of the media, definitely present, and then all the role models that we, we encounter as we age and as we go through life. And I, it's hard, you know, so all of a sudden I thought, well, who should we pick as role models? Because each one of us would pick different people. So I just picked some generic ones that I thought some of us might agree on. The Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, uh, certainly is being recognized as really a remarkable person, uh, unable to go to, you know, help us reach the latest peace that we're trying to have in Syria uh, because she was, um, has become ill with a stomach virus. So she's, she's a human being, even though she's really quite remarkable. Uh, Nora Ephron, wonderful writer, just wonderful, you know, gave us some wonderful films uh, when Harry met Sally or Sleepless in Seattle, just wonderful films. Um, the First Lady is a remarkable person. Now, some of you may not identify with these folks. For those of us who care about, you know, just trying to learn how to cook, though her cookbooks are kind of hard to read, Julia Child, you know, she's really um, uh, perhaps a role model for some. For me, of course, Elizabeth Blackburn, um, as, you know, if you go out through Parnassus, through the main campus building, the medical sciences building, there's that wall of Nobel Prize winners. I always see her out of the corner of my eye, and I'm just in awe of her. I've met her. She's an absolutely remarkable person. Um, she was actually doing the laundry when the call came to say that she had won the Nobel Prize for medicine. I love that. Um, and then, you know, also we just picked, you know, the, the remarkable um, women's uh, gymnastics team this last summer. What a joy to watch those young people as they pulled together and got the team gold. So these are just the experiences in our lives, and you can think about those young girls, the experience they've been through, uh, all of that they had to do to become Olympians, is going to affect the brains that they had, um, actually in, in ways that involve actually the impact in their lives of all that exercise on their hormonal cycles. And so you, it goes back and forth, this weaving of influence to create each of us as special people. We talk about the second lecture looked at body image. And that, of course, and if you remember um, Andrea's lecture, she talked about the influence of the media early on and how, how that, the media 
impacts how we we see our bodies. And in fact, you know, now we we know that this um, the concern with body image is reaching down to younger and younger and younger people. I was going to actually consider putting up some of those um, the little pageant winners, you know, at age four, you know, being made up to look like grown-up women and taught to walk a certain way to win those prizes. But there is a real problem now with young girls and being concerned about body image. And, you know, this is, of course, reinforced by magazines. Here, three minutes to flat abs for teens. Uh, Be a diet success right there. And you can see that she's an incredibly thin woman. You can, uh, they may have you know, done some photoshopping on her legs, but, you know, look at her thighs. Um, and then more and AARP, these are, more is for women that are 40, you know, in their 40s, but again, this focus on how to age well, and usually they try to come up with, you know, meaning in life and the other things, but again, a focus really on body. And AARP, on the cover, they try to capture people who have just turned 50, and here we have Sharon Stone. The new move, it was, it's this really striking, the numbers of people who are going in for plastic surgery now at younger and younger ages, which is an issue. Um, this is kind of new, you know, um, I think, for our culture. And so it makes me wonder, why don't we value age and wisdom? Now, does everyone recognize Maggie Smith and anyone know what this is from? No. Downton Abbey soon to be on the next, this is series four, a fun show, if there ever was one, in terms of some remarkable acting by someone who just, you know, when the minute she's on the screen, you know, it's, it's hard not to take your eyes off of her, but she's such a marvelous, marvelous actress, and obviously has not undergone a great deal of plastic surgery, and let many of us admire her greatly. So um, I just wanted you to see this is the body image, though, is still was one of the things we talked about, because I think now, even as we look at other multiple roles in our lives, there is this sort of pressure to also, you know, be concerned about our appearance and so forth. Um, We've talked a lot about the the challenges, and this is sort of the theme of this um, series in this um, mini medical course, was the multiple challenges that men and women face. Uh, The family challenges of rearing children, uh, spouses, the multiple roles, and males as well as females have these roles of being the dad or the mom, uh, being a good spouse, being supportive. Uh, And then within the home environment, the whole issue of of being a cook, and you know, for some of us, you know, we work. In fact, in uh, in California, the majority of working age women work outside the home. So many of us work, have all those responsibilities, but are also responsible for purchasing food and preparing food. And now, of course, we want that food to be healthy. Uh, we have to be concerned about the allergies that people in our family have, you know, whether or not this person needs to have low sugar, this person needs to do gluten-free, and becomes a, a real challenge. So there's a lot of challenges in, in just these, these roles. And then there's the, the home repair role that some of us uh, play. There's the work role that many of us have or have had in our lives. And work can be such an important source of resources and well-being, but can also be a stressor uh, as people work longer and longer hours. They're going to have a retreat for all of us in the School of Medicine this coming January. And um, Alyssa and I are going to be on a 
committee together, and they wanted us to look at different roles and di- or different topics, and the one we picked was work-life balance. And one of the people in our group signed up for that group because he and his wife went to Europe for vacation, but when he discovered that he couldn't get on the Internet to keep track of his studies at UCSF, they actually went to different hotels, and when they exhausted all the hotels in the town, they just decided to give up on the vacation and flew home. So this is, uh, you know, this is an issue for young associate professors and full professors. that you, you, It's not unusual now to, uh, as I will receive, um, an email from the National Institutes of Health asking me to report back on some aspect of one of my grants, and they give me five working days to do it. And that's why he was feeling that pressure, that you know, he just couldn't run that risk. Uh, so th- these are issues that we have these wonderful new technologies, but the technologies, and we could almost do a survey, to what extent have the technologies really served to aid us or not? And I think that that's, it's debatable unless we can figure out a way to manage it. And then we had Dr. Alyssa Eppel last week talking about caregiving and that important role. And I loved her perspective of saying that caregiving isn't just caring for the elderly, but many of us are caregiving for children, and some grandparents are caregiving for their grandchildren who end up moving back home. So there's a lot of these multiple roles that we have. Now, good news. There was a huge debate in uh, studies on women and stress of whether or not multiple roles are a, such a stressor that women should not work outside the home or women should not do these things. Uh, or might they be role-enhancing? And in fact, the research suggests that while multiple roles for men and for women involve role strain, a strain of competing um, contingencies at the same time, and actually role strain is significantly greater in women than it is in men, Uh, they can also be, multiple roles can be health enhancing. And the way that this works is the fact that um, if women view It has to do with those perceptions. If women view their roles as rewarding and enhancing their opportunities, even that perception can balance out the strain. And then we'll talk more about how it's not just the perception, but if women can kind of get a a grip on this and work through balancing those roles effectively, there can be tremendous opportunities in those. It does become kind of an art though, to do that and how to do that constructively. But the bottom line of the research is, is it role strain versus opportunity? It actually is a balancing act, and if you have to choose, it tends to move more toward the opportunities. And that may be why so many women choose some of these roles you are given, but many women choose to add additional roles because of those opportunities that the roles afford them. Now, which group is at the greatest risk? The group at greatest risk within women in particular are women who feel trapped. And that could be trapped in a job. That could also be trapped at home. That when women feel totally trapped and they can't get out of the situation that they're in, that turns out to be the group that is at greatest risk for depression and health risks are women who are trapped. Um, I actually did some research years ago with women that worked at Lockheed Missiles in Space or women who were spouses of 
men who worked at Lockheed Missiles in Space. And the group that had the highest depression were not the women that worked at Lockheed, even though they were under tremendous stress in a very, very, you know, aerospace industry and so forth. We actually found more depression in the women that didn't work outside the home. Uh, They had more depression. They also have more health problems. But this is where research gets complicated. Part of that could be that when women become ill in the workforce, they leave the workforce. So you can't just look at women that don't work outside the home and go, oh, they're unhealthy. It becomes a nuanced, and that's what has led to a lot of research on this role strain versus opportunity. So it looks like there's some real advantages to us figuring out how to create a portfolio that enhances our health as we kind of blend together these multiple roles. So the goal is for women and for men to successfully weave together their multiple threads of responsibility so that they can gather and garner those opportunities for reward resources and support that promote well-being. And the research that we did looking at the women at Lockheed Missiles in Space was, was often it is this the support that in the workplace, women had an opportunity to meet other women, to develop support groups, friendship groups that are very important. Plus, there were rewards and opportunities in terms of self-esteem and financial rewards. But you've got to balance that with figuring out then how to, how to put this all together in something that works for each one of us. And there's no magic answer for everyone. If we don't do that, then, then we'll get to the other two lectures we've had. One was the lecture that um, Catherine Lee gave us on, on sleep. You all recall that lecture. And she reported, I'll just remind you, on this survey where they looked at 1,000 women across the country. And some were working outside the home, some were not working outside the home. When she looked at the women who worked outside the home, they had the highest rates of complaints of insomnia. They had the highest rates of caffeine use. Um, averaging over 2.7 cups a day. And they also had the highest rate of drowsy driving, which you, if you attended that lecture, recall that that is a really, really serious problem. And that, that a lot of auto crashes are caused, of course, by substance use and alcohol and speeding. But drowsy driving is another major, major cause of crashes. So that is more common among um, of the women who work outside the home. And then she also highlighted that it was the 50-plus age group of women who were also the highest use of sleep aids. And we don't know if that's an age issue. It could be also linked to menopause. It could also be linked to still having a lot of a strain and trying to get more and more done. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think there's sometimes we just, there's not enough hours in the day, and so women keep, you know, some of us are doing laundry at 11 at night, you know, and things like that to try to get things done and then, you know, pile up all the folded clothes and sort of put it in strategic places around the home so they'll be encountered by the people who need those clothes the next day. Dr. Woolley, Mary Woolley, uh, gave a lecture, another lecture on the impact of being under a great Uh, of role strain, and that's this whole issue of stress and heart disease, which remains the the number one cause of death among adult women in our country. Now, she highlighted, and I'm just sort of weave this together, she reported on Sir William Osler's, uh, something he noticed in 1897, 
when he talked about his typical heart disease patient as being a keen and ambitious man whose engine was set at full speed ahead. And one of my first grants, actually was my first NIH grant that I received, was a grant to study type A behavior in women, which I did actually at Lockheed Missiles in Space way, way back uh, decades ago. Uh, And that was given to me. um, Actually, the person that I talked with was an older woman at the National Institute of Mental Health who really went to bat for me as a young investigator, saying, I think we should study this phenomenon in women, both women that work in, outside the home and inside the home. So she, she can't really, you know, they can't, uh, everything has to be peer-reviewed, but she did what she could to give me that first chance, and I'll, I'll never forget her. Her last name was Margolis, very important person in my life. I want to tell you a little bit about Sir William Osler. This idea was picked up by Drs. Friedman and Rosamann. And if you ever down by Mount Zion, uh, right there on Scott Street is a little uh, um, you know, awning that says the Harold Brun Institute. That's where they did all of their research. Rosamond and Friedman are from San Francisco. And I think, unfortunately, the building that they did their work in is slated to probably be torn down in the next two or three years, and that'll be really sad to see that go. And it was their upholsterer who noticed and mentioned to them that they were the only office that he'd ever seen where people wore out the front part of the chairs and the arms, and they think it was because these people would come in and they'd come right on time and they wanted to be seen right away, and they sat at the edges of the chairs to get into their appointments. And one of the things that when we used to do these type A interviews, um, we would always keep people waiting. Not only would we keep them waiting, but they would see the interviewer who's supposed to interview them, and she goes, I'll be right with you. And then she gets on the phone and looks like she's just having a chat with someone as a way to sort of like set the occasion for any of that behavior to come out. So Rosamond and Friedman did that work, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have Ray Rosamond uh, work with me on that type A study uh, that we did and that was back when I was at the Stanford Research Institute. So remarkable people right from here. And they came up with this idea that this type A behavior pattern, although they had a lot of characteristics, the key ones were time urgency and hostility. And time urgency is relevant because these are the people that are trying to do more and more in less and less time because it seems to set up the occasion for the anger and the hostility. It's like you're running behind and then something happens and you can't get something done. So they are, although the hostility may be carrying the risk, the time urgency creates the environment that kind of sets up the hostility. And Rosamond and Friedman, by identifying this behavior pattern, brought up this issue of, well, could we treat this? Are there ways in which we could help people change their behavior, their time, urgency, and hostility, and would that reduce their heart disease? And I actually, my first times at Mount Zion were working in Dr. Rosamond's office as a clinical psychologist, helping his patients because he said, look, I can see these people, but he didn't didn't want to spend the time uh, doing the counseling with them to have them change their lifestyles. And so that was something that I did uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s at Mount Zion. So they asked that question, and actually Friedman did the study, and this was, rep- um, this was reported by, um, in Mary Willie's talk, that they followed people who had um, already had a myocardial infarction or had significant heart disease. They gave them counseling. One group got the type A counseling, and it was focused on time urgency, hostility, but also something else. 
Woven into that, if you talk to Meyer Friedman, who did the study, they really talked about meaning in life and what was important in life. And that came out more when you talked about what was really going on in the groups. So that's when you, we get to talking about weaving together your portfolio for what you want to do with your time that you have in your life. It's important to think about what's important to you. And that was embedded in the counseling. And there... Um, and they had group counseling, and that would come out. And that kind of emerges when people start to talk about how, you know, how they might be able to look more closely at their kind of behavior. But they talked with them, and I'll be giving you some of the pointers from that intervention to change their hostility and time urgency. This group had usual care, and they came in for groups. They actually met in groups, but... Nothing about changing their behavior. It was just sort of talking about diet and other things like that, and they met and they talked, but they weren't given any explicit guidance. This group was really uh, only followed before and after. They didn't get received groups. They were seen by cardiologists, but they didn't have the group experience either. It's interesting that the group, the people that got a group experience that was sort of a placebo, it didn't go into the behavior. They were, though it's not significant, they they had the highest rates over the next four and a half years of recurrent or heart, you know, cardiac events. The type A group had the lowest rates, and this was statistically significant, suggesting that people could change the behavior and it would indeed make a difference in their lives, lowering their risk of having heart disease. So it's worth really thinking about making some of those changes. So that was to motivate you so that you'll be ready to kind of look at this, what we have joked about as the superwoman syndrome, and think about making some changes. And this really, the idea of the syndrome that came out, you know, over a decade ago was that many women strive to accomplish as much as possible and to do so in a really perfect manner. So if we try to have a dinner party you know, we want it to look really good, and we, you know, we want to have, you know, get out our nice stuff, and we, you know, oh, there should be a centerpiece, and blah, 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 and then the house has to be clean, and, you know, what if somebody looks in that room, we'll close the door so nobody can see in there, and, and so it even, there was a point when people had dinner parties, and now there's a point where people, it's too much work, and so we go out, you know, because it's just too much work, whereas people really would love to probably just come and be at the house, you know, but we don't, well, the superwomen don't want to do that. We can't order Chinese in, you know, it just, no, no. Uh, so it's just, it gets out of hand. And then, you know, then you got to have the right clothes. I've given up on the right clothes, by the way. <laughs> Some of us just give up, you know, but remember the skirts up, the skirts down. And thank goodness it's gotten so confusing that we're all just sort of wearing what we, how many of us wear what we want? You know, and, and now for some of us, we get to an age where comfort is more important than almost anything. But, but there was a time where, you know, and like now that's boots with heels or boots without heels. Heels, boots, out, heels, you know, when you don't know what to do. And it's just, you know, I can't keep up. So but I come around the campus and I look. I wish I could wear scrubs to work. That would be easier. Then <laughs> you don't have to think. Maybe we could all have uniforms, you know, that would, that would be, you know, just plaid skirts and white blouses. <laughs> so as a result, what we see is that women sacrifice themselves for their health. And this is something we don't want to do. And I want you leave today thinking about maybe 
Even though you may have everything just perfect, may, don't worry about that. Maybe you can also just think about what would I like to do so I will have optimal health and feel well-being and I won't feel pressure to be perfect. Uh, and I will borrow this idea that I think came from, it was, might have been Alyssa Eppel who used this idea that, that you know, if we want to, if we really care for our families, if we really care for the people that we're working for, we need to put our own mask on first. We need to get the oxygen. We need to get this worked through. And then, indeed, we're probably going to do a better job at taking care of others in our lives. So with that, I want to talk about this creating your personal path to wellness. And I'll talk about some themes. One is to clarify values because this is really important. We'll do a little quick exercise on that. Then we're going to talk about managing time. I will give you sort of the, you know, a real kind of shortened version of time management. There's a lot you can learn on time management. There are even courses you can take, lots of Kindle books you could read. Um, we'll talk about managing those negative moods, the hostility, anger, anxiety, depression, just negative mood, how to maybe manage that, and then we'll close with breathe and I'll tell you what that means. But this first, this issue of clarifying values, uh, those of you are here in the class, I want you to think about and answer the question. And you can, if I only had five years left to live, how would I spend my time? And you have to think about, you know, of course, things like finances and careers, family. Would you, you know, what would you do with family? What, what about friends? How important would your work be? What about your own self? Do you still think about getting some, you know, taking some courses, reading books? Um, what would you do for yourself? I want you to think about if you only had a limited time, how would you spend that time? And when you get to my age, there are people who actually, I had a friend who knew he only had a very, very short time. His, um, Alan Marlat, a phenomenal scientist, and he sent a blast email to, uh, out to everyone and, because he knew that he, had very, he only had weeks. And he said, please don't call me. You know, know that I care about you, but I'm going to spend my time. And in his choice, it was family. And you know, it, was, I'm, it, it makes me choke up just to think of that. But people have done that. You know, that they, so the question is, do we do this now, or you know, can you do this every day of your life? Because we never know. You never know. Some of us are old enough to remember when Princess Diana died. I mean, you know, it was such a shock because she was so vibrant. She was so young. You know, she was just beginning to kind of build a different life for herself, regardless of what you think of that, that in a moment it was just over. And not that you want to live like, you know, being worried about every moment, but you, we should live each day or at least every three days, you know, we should really be thinking about that. So I want you to give some thought to that. Um, and so what you have on your page, and those of you watching this on UCTV, just draw a circle. And then you divide up that circle. How many, if you want to think about a year, you know, how many months, or, you know, sort of like how much should be for my work? How much should be for my family? What do I want to do? You know, and just give some thought to that. It's not a heavy thing, but it's something I think we often don't think about because we've, it seems endless. You know, we don't want to think about that. So we, we, you know, I'm at an age now where I can think I'm holiday seasons. I only probably have so many holiday seasons left. And so you just kind of be wise about that. 
It's an investment. It's like you have a portfolio. You have the, nothing is more valuable than your own time. So we, it's sort of an. How do you want to invest it? So I'd like you to do that, and then think about now after you've done this. How did you spend the last month? I, this was interesting for me. I will confess. I was working on these slides all weekend. You know, kind of cleaning them up because I had them as slide slides, but they now we need PowerPoint slides, and I wanted to be. Good. I want to entertain. You know, have cute pictures. It took time, and so here I am doing this thing on work-life balance and clarifying values. And the 49er game is in the background, and I'm going, "What happened? What happened?" Uh, for those of you on UC TV, those 49ers is a football team, San Francisco. Uh, so they won, uh, but I did, I stayed with the slides. Uh, the, some of you should say, "Go, oh, no, no, no." Uh, so anyway, th- what you need to do is think about how you would spend those last five years, and then just begin to think about how did I do the last year and Do you want to do some thinking around this? Do you want to maybe make some choices? This is important. It's probably the most important thing to do periodically in your life so that you can actually invest your time optimally, which is really important. And before we talk about time management, it's imperative that you spend some time, I think, doing this to clarify those values so you're managing time in a way that fits the values. So then we we get to the second thing. Clarify values, now manage time. And this is uh, interesting. Most people who pride themselves in managing time, I like to say they they turn to Time Management 101, which is that you... Um, they become experts on hurrying, how to do things fast. You know, they're just all... They're, they're the people that are texting while they walk, which is actually dangerous in this town. You can get hit by cars or people take your cell phones. So, uh, you know, not good. Uh, but they are the people who, you know, stopped using snail mail. Then we had FedEx. Remember FedEx? That was the greatest thing, you know, get, do things at the last minute. Then fax. Fax was good. Now who faxes anymore? Now we make PDFs. You know, all of this is do it faster, faster, faster. You know, if you need a rec- recommendation letter, no problem. You have electronic signatures, and it's gone. Uh, and so what happens is, does that give us any more time? No. <laughs> we just do more. But this is, people are experts in hurrying. And that is really a common way of trying to do time management. These are the people, by the way, that know all about express lanes. They have figured all of this out. They know how to get around and everything. And they will count the number of items in everybody else's basket. (laughs) This has truly happened. This has happened to me. This happened to me. I was told to get out of line because I had a bag of oranges. You know, and I'm in 15 or less, and I count my items. I'm okay because I always thought a bag of oranges was like, how many people call that one item? All right, it's unanimous. It's one item, right? Okay, this guy, I could not believe it. I, I'm looking, and then the person behind me got in an argument. Said, no, 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 it's so, you know, and they're, they're having this argument about whether or not I should get to the back of the line. I said, it's okay, it's okay. I'm going, I will give you my other answer of how you should handle supermarkets. That's what you'll learn in this class. Um, I immediately went to the back of the line, and I, I said, would you come in for an interview? <laughs> we could use you, you know. You are really good, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, so he was good. He patted down. A little bit of hostility there, but, you know, I explained that to the woman. I said, don't worry, he'll die soon. It's okay. No. Um, 
I didn't want to say it. I would never say that. I would never say that. No. Um, okay, so this is the thing about hurrying. It's not so good. So what do we do instead? We download. Now, what has happened, what usually, you know, I used to give, I used to be at Mount Zion doing these talks one-on-one with people. People say yes to too many things. You know, they say, oh, you say yes to too many things. The truth is the yeses accumulate. That's the problem. And there's something about many of us, we don't want to give up any of those things. Part of that is you give it to somebody young with more energy, they're going to probably do a better job than you've been doing. But that's what happens. You know, we, we say yes. And it's like taking cards. And all of a sudden, you've got too many cards. And you can't look at them all and you start dropping them. Uh, and so part of it is really to... And after you do your values clarification, just start making a list. Like I was just asked if I would be on the editorial board of a journal that comes out of China and it's on acupuncture. Okay, I am not an expert on acupuncture. I don't speak Chinese. There are other experts on acupuncture. But for a moment, you know, I thought about my CV. Wrong. And I thought, ooh, I could put that on my CV. Nobody is going to notice that, you know, and, and I'm not the best person, so I just, I need to turn that down. How many people say I should turn that down? I'm on an editorial board. That's why I put that in my intro, so you already know that. How many say, Margaret, turn it down? Good. Yes. Thank you. I should turn that down because there are better people for it, too. I don't need that. So what I'm suggesting is you need to go through your list and say, I could mentor someone. Someone else could do this. I need some time for me. If you see the movie Lincoln, many people liked it. It's based on a great book. The book is really thick. It's called Team of Rivals. I saw a copy of it in the class last week, I think, or a week before last. Super book. I hope they didn't read it while I, we were lecturing. But um, it's a great book. You know, I need time to read books. So you need to think about what is it I want to do with my time? Visit relatives. Maybe have a really nice dinner party. Whatever it is. So you've got to download, and there's no magic to that except that your yeses have accumulated. And then what you can do is avoid future overload. So when I got this request, you'll be proud. I looked at it, and I thought, no, I'm going to turn that down, but I gave a whole bunch of names of young people who need to be editors of journals, and this would look really good. And so, but if I take on something new, I'll have to let something else go. This idea that you can just add it is what happens to why we're working at 11, 11, 30, 12 at night, because you're trying to squeeze more and more in. And you reach a point of max. And most of us have had those experiences. So download, and then as you take on new things, you have to give others away. Don't just try to keep squeezing more in. That's, that's a problem. And here's another tip, and that is what many people do. is that It's called clearing the decks. Many of us have things that we should be doing that we've postponed. Uh, and because in academia, it's writing. Or writing that email that we are making that call that we don't really, it's complicated or we don't really want to do it. How many of you have something you keep going to the end that you go, oh, I still, I still didn't make that call? How many of you have something like that? Okay. What, and then what happens is what people do is especially people are trying to get a lot done, we get anxious that we're not doing enough. So we end up doing little simple things fast, you know, make some copies, do easy things, do some email is the best, you know, clip through some emails, and we think we're clearing the decks, so then we'll get to the important thing. 
And this is a really bad trap, particularly with email, because email keeps coming. There's more and more. And, oh, i got to answer that one. And, and, and then, if you, by the way, the faster you answer people, the faster they get back to you. <laughs> this is a, it's a phenomenon. I've noticed it. Uh, so some things it's better to not do that. Uh, but we do it because we want to scratch it off. You know you're in trouble if you keep lists and you put things on the list you've already done so you can scratch it off. How many of you have done that? Wrote it down and scratched it off? No one in the class? Oh. I have. It's bad. I, oh, bathe. Yes. You know, get up. That's a good one. Um, okay, that's, there, this is a fallacy. So a much more effective way of doing, spending your time is if you identify those things that are most important is to then do 15 minutes of the task you've been putting off and then reward yourself with a few of these little things because we love doing those. So I'm not going to do email. I won't even turn it on or I won't check my favorite website until I have drafted the first paragraph or the first whatever it is. Once you begin and you break into it, then you can feel so good. And you get to the end of the day and you don't go, oh, I can't believe I forgot that again. You know, it's terrible. Now you'll feel so good. I did it or I started it. And tomorrow I'm going to do paragraph two. And three. this is a much better way. And I, when you see yourself doing this, you, I want you to remember me. Save these notes. But that is a real trap. Schedule with the real world in mind. This is something else very important. You have to schedule with that there might be some road construction. I wanted to be here on time. I left, so I wasn't running at the last minute because I also it looks really bad if I'm doing a thing on time management and I come running in but you know I I really am trying to do this um and so you know you go to the airport you have to plan for there being really really long lines and then uh you know there's a wonderful things I'll teach you about things you can do while you're waiting in line uh so but you have to schedule with the real world in mind and that was something we found about the type a men and women is they did not they would schedule things at kind of like if it's, you know, 30 miles, it'll take 30 minutes. Not likely. And that means they're always running. They're always trying to do one or two more things. When you come through the hospital, I come to a class like this, somebody might want to chat with me. And I want that time with people. That's what life is. You know, when you think about if I were in my, my last years, you know, uh, you know, I want to. I want to connect with people. That's what's really important. I don't want to be going. Catch you later. That's not the the person I, I'd like to be. So I need to schedule to allow to run into a friend now and then and be able to say hi. How have you been? The other is to create timeouts during the day, to create breaks, and this will relate to breathe, which we'll get to later. So download is really important. Avoid that future overload. And schedule with the real world in mind. You know, these are tips. Avoid that, you know, trying the, doing all those simple little easy things because that actually is managing your anxiety about being behind, and, but it's not getting the things done you need to get done. So we've clarified values. We're managing time. Now we're going to take on what's really tough, and that's those negative moods. Um, now, one thing I want to say is that th- this... Their anxiety, depression, and anger, these all kind of sometimes flow together. 
and they, you, you know, people, sometimes people are not, they feel, they'll use the word frustrated. Is I think especially for women, we don't want to say or call ourselves angry, but we do get very frustrated. And when we get frustrated with ourselves, we can get down. Um, and so these moods sort of simmer, and our studies show that they're all really quite important. I'm going to highlight just a few of the findings that Mary Woolley presented, with, and I'll just show you. Remember those graphs? Those of you who saw it. The main point here was that anger and hostility in studies that included males and females uh, if you looked across all of these studies, then they would summarize them, and the point was if, if the weight of the evidence was off to the right side of one, that meant that the risk was greater than one, like a tw- in this case, a 19% greater risk uh, of heart disease if people had, so it's a tw- almost 20% greater risk if people scored high in anger or this idea of hostility. And that was for... Uh, coronary artery disease. This was for recurrent. People have had a heart attack, and then the risk of having a second one, again, 25% greater across all these studies. And these studies are really conservative. Um, So here you can see the weight of evidence. Anxiety, that was anger and hostility. Then there was similar studies she reported on anxiety, which is probably actually... That's a little more tricky to study, but here in this pool study, the 25% greater risk for people with that kind of anxiety. And then the findings in depression were even stri- more strident, more striking. Uh, basically, 60% higher risk of an initial heart attack if a person has depressed mood, which psychiatry is often talked about as is frustration and anger turned inward. So these negative moods are, are sort of interwoven, not good. A huge study was just done by a, one of my colleagues, Salim Youssef, who um, years ago, he was at NIH, and I was here at UCSF, and he didn't believe in any of these kinds of things. He thought it was just lipids and smoking and high blood pressure and you know, the other risk factors, but he did not believe that stress that psychosocial stress would be a heart, would create you know risk for heart disease, and he did the largest study ever, and I was so I couldn't believe this when I saw it come out in the journal, which Lancet, a phenomenal journal, and this is 52 countries, but primarily in Europe, uh, and they found that while elevated lipids, and this is not, and it, this include people in the United States as well. We are one of the countries, but many, many more countries. So it's global study. High cholesterol was really related to increased risk, but above things like hypertension or cigarette smoking for heart disease was depression, stress, and so forth. So, and he, I remember that we had some really good emails, you know, because he's, you know, it was sort of, and jokingly, uh, you know, because it's really, really important. Part of the package, though, is that one thing we find, and I pointed this out to him, is that when people have a lot of stress, then they tend to, if they're smokers, they smoke more. If they've quit, they go back to smoking. Uh, People who uh, have a lot of stress tend to exercise less. People who feel a lot of depression and anxiety often drink more. So what happens is the stress is pull also associated with these others. And that actually, so you get even more reverberation uh, from these negative affects, which is another reason I, I want to talk about them this evening. So I want to um, talk about how do you change this? What's going on? What can we do about it? But first I want to say it is okay to get angry. 
there are things in life that are worth getting angry about. And so whenever I've worked with people, I always say, you know, I'm not saying don't be angry. That's not what I'm saying. Injustice. There are times in our lives where you have to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. You know, I want to fight for this. And we use words like that, too. You know, like you have a cause that's really, really important to you that you could get angry. If, if, for, and for every one of us, it's going to be different. So I say yes. But stuck in traffic, you know, what are you going to do? You know, that, you know is that something to get angry about? It, that I'll just ask you that. Oh, this is bad. When this happens, it's bad. But it's not that bad. You know, it, you know it's, it's bad, but, you know, you, you can sop it up really fast, and then you can still sort of make out. Or maybe it was the list of things you didn't need to do anyway, so now they're just gone. <laughs> That's an advantage, you know. It's like scratching it off the list. It's like washed away. Um, I will point out, too, that some of the times, you know, we get frustrated, you know, like you're just going to do copies. And I don't know why it is, but it's only when you go to do copies that you notice the copy machine says, you know, add this or add that or add paper. You only run out of paper when you're copying. I used to have a joke, but this shows how old I am. You only run out of typewriter ribbon when you're typing. It was like, I used to think, why does this always happen to me when I'm typing? Duh. But some of you are too young. You have no clue what that means. That, that's okay. Uh, you could Wikipedia typewriter, and it would explain that to you. Um, so anyway, these are not reasons to get angry. Okay, so uh, what do we do about this? I'm going to encourage you to monitor those times that you get in an, in an irritable way and identify the triggers. And lots of times the triggers are we're trying to get a lot done and something comes up, you know, and you can't, you know, you, you get behind a slow person in line or whatever. And, you know, it's, but I, for each one of us, those triggers are different. And so, or maybe somebody did something that made you frustrated earlier in the day and you've been such a good person and then you get to a place where it just, the straw that broke the camel's back. But for each one of us, it's different. So monitor your negative moods, be it anxiety or depression or anger. What triggers it? And then I want you to confront the myth of moods. And this is the myth. And this relates, if any of you think back to Alyssa Epple's lecture and those on UCTV, you want to look for that lecture. She uh, talked about how our mind was clear as the sky and that our thoughts were like clouds going through the sky. And then, you know, the clouds come and go, and then it's gone. Our mind, our moods, you know, are like those clouds. And we're going to look at the anger-hostility myth, but this holds for other moods as well. And that is that we have this myth that an event occurs, and it makes us angry. You know, it just makes us angry. That made me angry, which means you're kind of, you know, you're letting your sky be impacted by something that occurred. And I'm going to say that some events are really, really do, you know, are just, you know, for you, it's, we're going to talk about this, but events don't actually totally make you angry. What happens is the event occurs, and then it goes through your personal filter, and then you become angry. And I'm going to give you an example in my life um, that is, you know, kind of embarrassing. But, you know, I was one time shopping in a mall, and I was driving and um, driving and driving and around looking for, you know, I'm trying to park. And this car, I don't know if you've ever seen this, where the car in front of you stops and waits for another person to come out 
so that they can go in. And I was, this is before I was, you know, in remission for my anger and hostility. And so I was getting frustrated. I was sort of like, just park. Just park further away. You can walk. It's healthy. It's a beautiful day. You know, and just, you know, why are we doing this? And then now there are people behind me. And so finally, you know, the, the, the person, they finally do all of this. And as I start to go woo, in my self-righteous moment, and I'm so ashamed of this, but I will share it with you. As I start to go by, I realize that they're handicapped. And it was, you know, it's like, oh, my Lord, oh, oh. And, you know, just I felt so bad. And what happened was the event occurred, but suddenly new information, new information. It was like, oh, I hope they didn't see me. Oh, you know, it's just awful. And that, I, my filter changed. My filter changed on me, and it was like, now I don't feel any anger. And what's so amazing is even as you heard this, you all went, ooh. You know, and so anger is immediately gone. That clap, it's gone. And then the shame. So these moods are transient. So it, there's hope. There's tremendous hope that maybe the people that are doing that, they just don't want to walk far. Maybe they've got a foot problem. You know, maybe they just, you know, they've had a really bad day. And there's a million reasons People engage in behaviors that sometimes can be viewed by the, some of us as irritating. But you can always just, it's like, it's not, this is not important. You know, this is, and I, I work on my filters. Uh, and so you, we can always do this. And, you know, you can think of the times that you've been angry. And just think about your attitudes, your perceptions. My, my appraisal instantly changed. So I work and change it. You can change your appraisals. I'll even sometimes stand there and think of five reasons. This person, why do people drive so slow in the fast lane? Okay, number one, nobody says that's the fast lane. You know, it isn't in the, the manual for driving that if you're in the far left lane, you can go 15 miles over the speed limit. You know, I don't think that that's there. You know, it isn't. Uh, some people drive in the fast lane because there's a shoulder there, and if they get scared, they can pull over. And there's only one other lane of traffic, and people aren't coming and going out of that. My Aunt Alice, that's why she drove in the fast lane, is that she just felt it was safer. And, and I remember as kids, we'd, like, get down really low. You know, just, but, it, you know, there's a million reasons that people do the things that they do. Uh, sometimes people are driving slow because they've just gotten really bad news, you know, and they're not focusing. Or sometimes they're on the cell phone, you know, which is dangerous. And so you just kind of, there's a lot you can do to not have events control your moods. That's the hidden secret in this. That's a myth that things, now some things are really, really hard. And I'll never say that if there's a loss that one doesn't become sad, that that happens. So I would say save these negative moods for the things that really matter. Uh, So we look at the costs and the benefits of particularly anger. And I'll tell you the one for anger. And this is what we used to we did when we worked with patients, is that when, and this is particularly true of anger, and there's a different hormone for depression, that you could almost imagine uh, one of these surgical trays off to the side and one of those hypodermic needles. And in that needle is adrenaline. And so when something occurs that makes you irritated, say it's traffic or somebody cutting you off or you know, anything like that, if you get really angry, what you d- need to do, and this is what happens, essentially it's like taking that hypodermic needle, taking the adrenaline, and injecting it into your heart. And it does all kinds of things. Your heart rate goes up, your, ve- your, your, um, your vessels constrict, and it's, it's, 
it's something that you can do. But you need to decide, is it worth it? Or do you pick up that syringe and go, no, this isn't worth it. Traffic's not worth it. My flight isn't going to take off on time. United didn't do it on purpose. Nobody wanted this to happen. And it's going to be okay. And a year from now, you won't even notice. You know, um, I, I've discovered, I have another one. Um, you know, one time I lost luggage for a long time. You know, so you ended up wearing the same clothes all the time and everything and spent half of your vacation on the phone trying to figure out where your bags are, which happens less now because of all the coding. But... Um, the positive thing is then you have great stories for cocktail parties. You can talk about how you, you know, this or that happened. Um, and you have really funny things about how you can take a jacket and if you don't have a blouse, you go down to, and you get, um, you go down to the, uh, to the restaurant, not wearing the jacket, of course, but you go down in other clothes and you borrow a napkin. And then you go back up to your room and you take the napkin and you pin it to whatever you can, using the little pins that come in the little sewing thing, um, and you pin it to your bra or something, and then it looks really great, and you can wear the jacket even though you don't have a blouse. And people will tell you, just don't have Holiday Inn showing. You, know? you have to tuck that around so it doesn't show. So you can be ingenious. And now I can tell you, and you all laugh, and instead of me getting angry that that was in the bag that I don't have. So um, you can get creative. So the costs are, for depression, it's, the cost is cortisol and various hormones, that these moods have an effect on our, our lives. So you, you can make choices. And all I'm saying is be alert to your negative moods because they're really, really not a good thing for your health. And you can consider your options. Your options are to express the anger. Get it out. You can suppress the anger and hold it in. And we did studies where we actually had people talk about events that made them angry. And then we would look at their hearts uh, using all kinds of imaging techniques. And what's interesting is we had to have them tell us one that was unresolved. If they, if they told us a resolved thing, it was like telling the story at the cocktail party. It, it, it all works out in the end. So we asked them to identify something that still makes them angry. And they would start talking about this. And their hearts would start engaging in heart behaviors that were so dangerous we could never replicate the study. It was worse than putting people on treadmills. Uh, it was really, you show left ventricular hypertrophy. It's the, the left chamber of the heart stops, it starts vibrating. It's really not healthy. It's as though the, the body has not, re you know, it's like it didn't read Webster's. This is recall of anger, and it just went into anger. And people really got heated talking about this, and it affected their bodies. So that we couldn't repeat the experiment. So expressing the anger is not so good. We know holding anger in isn't so good. So the option is reconsider, reappraise, let it go, save it for things that really, really matter. So that's a way of managing negative moods. And final way is humor. This is one of my favorite, favorite jokes. If you can't see it, it says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. You know, just, you know, think about fun things. Now, I have, Lar this is a Larson cartoon. He, he stopped doing cartoons. I have his books in the, in the bathroom in my house. So people go in the bathroom and they're in there laughing and laughing. They never come out. People love humor. <laughs> humor is great. And so I, you know, I sometimes will try to think, you know, someday, someday I'll use this joke in a class and, you know, it'll be humorous, even though I'm going through this really traumatic event now. So we've clarified values, we've talked about managing time, we've talked about 
monitoring those negative moods and really thinking through your options. And now what I'd like to do is share with you uh, breathe. Remember I talked about how a really important way of doing this is to take timeouts during the day. And I'll walk you through this. But before I do that, let me motivate you just a little bit more with some new science about stress and its effects on breathing, particularly for females. Uh, Now, most of us heard about stress leads to fight or flight. That's the idea that when there's stress, like the tiger is coming, you either fight the tiger, probably not a good idea, um, or run. And that is kind of the common, those are the two things. But there's actually a third option, and that's the freeze response. The freeze response is where, you know, all of a sudden, and in fact, we would engage in this. If there was a really loud, strange noise or the the room started to move, our first response would be to stop, and we would all go... And what you're doing there is you stop breathing and you're listening and you're becoming hypervigilant. And that is very common. Uh, because you, and during that time, what you're doing is you're trying to assess the situation. Breathing is noisy. And so we stop breathing and we go, what was that? And you stop. Okay. And so there's a vigilance, the freeze response. And this is something that animals do. It's something that humans do. It seems to be something the freeze response may, may be more common among females than males. And that may get us back to that brain and the area. This may be a choice, thinking back to cave person days, that maybe women would engage in of you know, being incredibly quiet and hunkering down. We don't know. I mean, we, we just don't know. But it is a little more common in female humans than in male humans. And what I we've noticed, too, is that this... Breath-holding response is something that some, some people engage in, and particularly, again, women. And I found, I, we've developed a monitor for our study that we're doing here at UCSF, and um, I noticed I was wearing the monitor, and it was letting me know when I was holding my breath, and I hold my breath when I'm on the computer, particularly when I'm waiting for it to do whatever it's going to do. I'm being hypervigilant, waiting for you know, things to come so I can finally do my response. And so just you know, being more aware of that, I, you know, I have a little note on my camera. Breathe, breathe. Uh, this is important. Um, the vigilance, why was this happening? Well, vigilance actually is an adaptive response because it increases the CO2 and um, it, that increases cerebral blood flow as CO2 the carbon dioxide, as carbon dioxide goes up, the blood flow to your brain goes up. So there's another reason we don't do it. Not just that breathing is noisy, but we're, we're actually putting more blood into our brain so we can think and make a judgment. What was that? Was that just um, some noise out in the hall, or do we need to pay attention to that? Was that, you know, a car going by, or might here in San Francisco, might that be an earthquake? So we, that's something that is associated with vigilance. We want that blood flow. The question we have is psychological stress associated with inhibited breathing in people. And um, guess what? Yes. The answer is yes. So there are some studies that um, David Anderson and I did uh, that looked at uh, psychological stress and breathing. And we found that for women, for example, people who had very low perceived stress actually breathe more frequently. People who are under more high stress 
And this is sort of how does some of the stress get into your body. Uh, people that are higher in stress, the, um, both men and women, here's the men and the women, their breathing is less frequent. Um, and these were people who, on a questionnaire, just reported that they had higher levels of stress, and then we studied their breathing frequency, and we found these associations. It's, um, it's actually... Present in both uh, males and females in the size of the study, it was only significant. That difference was significant in women, not in men. If we had more people in the study, they both would have been significant. But the, the trend is stronger in females than males. So is perceived stress, um, is it associated in all people? Yes. The answer there is more significantly in women than in men. Now, does that increase the CO2? That um, what's what's going on? Remember, we showed that if people hold their breath, that puts the blood to the brain. Well, what do you see if we look at CO two, carbon um, carbon dioxide? Here, you've got the breathing frequency. Now, women who are holding their breath have a lower frequency, and now they have a higher level of CO two. So, if we don't breathe as much, the CO two in our body—remember, you breathe in oxygen and you breathe out CO two. So, if you breathe in oxygen and you hold it for a long time, your CO two levels are going up. Uh, and so, this is—you see, this was um, s- significant in women. The women who breathe really frequently actually have a lower level of CO two. They're breathing in and out, out, and their oxygen's better, and their CO two is lower. The same pattern in men, um, and th- that breathing frequency. And CO2 is significant in both genders. It's just that women are the ones that tend to do this inhibited breathing more than do the men. And you can actually have people do this in the lab, force it, or you can study people just looking in this study with, on their own breathing frequencies, and they just looked to see if you got the CO2 patterns that match. So there's a problem with doing a lot of breath holding. Um, and here's some of the data. Just you know, these the ten percent of the variance of resting systolic blood pressure. That's the higher number in postmenopausal women is accounted for just by CO2. This, these are new findings. There's an association between CO2 and blood pressure, and I'll give you kind of the layman's how that happens. And the this relationship of CO2 to systolic blood pressure in women is partly mediated by inhibiting anger. Uh, my mother is the, the example I give on that. My mom would not say she's angry. She'd go, I'm, I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. I'm just fine. And we used to say, Mom, breathe, you know, you know chill, you know, hang. It, it, she would just hold her breath, and she was just, I'm fine. And she would give you those unfelt smile. This is the smile where the mouth moves, but the eyes don't. Now, I'll do that one for you so you can see. I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> and I say, and that's, and Paul Ekman, who's here at UCSF, studies that. That's called an unfelt smile. So now when you watch the news, you can look for those people. When people smile, the eyes also get involved. And that's a real smile is, you know, the whole face. So, but um, inhibiting anger is this holding anger in, or even denying anger was associated, we found, uh, in People have the women having higher systolic blood pressure. That that the anger is mediating this role, a relationship between the CO2 and the systolic blood pressure. And people who meet have that kind of anger are also the people that are holding their breath. So it's associated with holding breath. All these there's not an 
either or all the time, but these moods go with the breath holding, goes with the CO2, and then we'll get to the blood pressure. And the relationship wasn't just with blood pressure. Uh, we looked at carotid artery thickness. This is thickness in these arteries, which you, is a, a problem. You don't want to have too thick an artery because if the, if the tube gets too thick, the opening is not big enough. <laughs> so you don't want to have real thick walls of your carotid arteries. And so it, it, this is actually, that was sort of a surprise. Um, and I'll, let me, I'll give you the quick version of what might be happening with the CO2. This is work that David Anderson has worked on for about 30 years. What he fa- found was that basically when the, um, this is a layman's version, that the, when a person's CO2 is elevated, that throws off your acid-base balance. CO2 is acid. Uh, any of you, um, you know, uh, if you, acid is really bad, and it leads, it's associated with inflammation. It has really adverse effects on our bodies to basically have our blood be so acidic. It's like acid. Just think about that. And so the kidneys pick up that the, um, the acidity isn't right. And the kidneys control the acid-base balance in your system. So the kidneys will then say, we need to do something to reduce the acid. Now, do any of you wear contact lenses? Anybody in this room wear contacts? Okay. And if you water is more acidic than the fluids we use for our contact lenses, uh, what fluids do you use for contact lenses? saline solution because saline sodium brings down the acid levels and it's more base so the kidneys I I think of these as like little machines these kidneys go oh dear we've got too much much acid going on what could we do we can hold on to the sodium we will hold on we're going to now pull sodium out of the system and we're going to hold sodium even though uh, and so and in doing so the kidneys are sacrificing blood pressure in order to keep the acid levels down. So the kidney will make that choice. It's going to say this will likely raise blood pressure a little bit, but we'd rather have that than have acid running through the whole system. So what the kidney does is it then, and you can actually manage this, and, and David Anderson did studies where he would take all the sodium out of a person's diet, and then you, know, they, you, could, you could test out whether or not it was the sodium that was being added and did urinary sodiums, and he really found this association. The, high C, the breath holding, CO2, sodium gets held, and many of us know if we have a lot of sodium, in our diet, sometimes we will show volume. You know, women, will, you'll, you'll talk about you have water retention. So the fluid volume goes up, the blood pressure goes up. If you don't have high CO2 levels, then your body goes, oops, we have too much sodium and it'll, you know, so if you eat salty snacks, if you're not worried about high blood pressure, if you don't have a lot of CO2, then your body will just compensate and everything goes along okay. But if you're breath holding and your CO2 goes up and you have an American diet with that kind of amount of sodium in it, then the volume goes up, the blood pressure goes up. So there was this interesting, it says everybody thinks of stress and blood pressure being all adrenergic arousal, central nervous system mediated. And no, there's this other pathway through respiration. So that is very interesting. So that's actually some research that we're doing at the Osher Center. Because if inhibited breathing is a factor in some forms of hypertension, and hypertension has many forms, but it may be a form of 
one of the major forms of hypertension may be associated with inhibited breathing. Then we could train people to avoid breath holding, and that could be useful in helping people prevent hypertension or treat it. And what's so interesting is if you look at the literature, the behavioral interventions to help people lower their blood pressure, what did they have in common? Many of them, um, yoga, relaxation, even the cognitive therapies would teach people relaxation techniques that involve breathing. So it may have been in teaching people new breathing patterns that that would help people, and that may be the way. Why is it? How is it that meditation ends up lowering blood pressure? We're exploring that. But all of this says breathe could be really important. So I'm going to teach you a key. I'm going to use the words in breathe, uh, or the letters in breathe, but to highlight some of the key things that you can do to help you manage stress in your lives. So when you want to take a little quick time out, you can just sort of go through this in your mind and think about breathe. And then sometimes you can even think about B-R-E-A-T-H-E. So the B stands for breathe. Just take a deep breath, you know, take a deep breath and be present in with yourself in the moment. And if you've ever had, there are classes on meditation, you can do this at the Osher Center elsewhere, you'll learn this in yoga, but to be present. You're sitting on those chairs, feel your feet on the floor. Feel your body in the chair. Feel the chair supporting your body. Take a minute and be here, here and now, in this moment, and be present. And it's like that you can just even just take a chance, just take a moment to do that. During the day, sometimes I will go to the ladies' room and I just, you know, close it all up and I just sort of take a moment. I just sort of go, okay. And I try to do the clear sky that, yes, things are happening. There's stuff that's going to occur during the day, but those are just clouds. And, you know, my mind is my mind. And, you know, I have some control over how quickly those clouds stay around or whether I focus on them. So I take a deep breath, be present, and you can, there's all kinds of ways to learn to meditate. But even just one deep breath and then exhale. You don't have to hold it long. In fact, given the research, I would say don't hold it too long. You know, breathe in and breathe out. And, and if you've been trained in mindful breathing, it's just let yourself, or for me, if I start focusing on my breathing, I breathe weird. I'm one of those people. And so I have to think about, you know, the shore and the, the, you know, the, the ocean coming in and then going out, coming in. Or I'll think about, you know, all the wheat in the field and I see the, the beautiful the breeze going over the wheat. That, for me, works better than focusing on my breath because then I think I'm not doing it right. So, but some people do the breath part really well. Uh, don't tell anybody I have that strange flaw. Oh, oh people know. Uh, R, realistic. I already said this before, but realistic. Set realistic goals for this moment, this hour, this day. There was so much I wanted to share with you, but I've tried to be realistic in things I thought you could take home and use. And this is so important. 
many of us try to do way more than we can do. We carry home way too much work from the office, you know, just in case we get snowed in or something. I don't know. Or we don't even want to pick what we're going to work on and because we can't decide. We didn't take the time to do that. So we just scoop everything in, and then we schlep it all back to work the next day. So it's better to be realistic. Now, if you remember that thing, remember the thing you've been putting off, you do 15 minutes of that, and then reward yourself with all those quick little easy things. And then at the end of the day, you go, I did it. I finished that letter. I did this. What is your goal for tomorrow? You know, think about that. What can you realistically get done? And, you know, think about your last four or five days. You know, be realistic because not being realistic puts us up for really feeling that we failed. It's an incredible bummer, and it's not helpful, and we feel like we're always behind. And then what does that tell you to do is download, download. So this all kind of entwines. But I want you to be more realistic with tomorrow. And if you don't do it tomorrow, I think you need to do it the next day. Really think about this. What can you really get done? And then celebrate. I did it. I, that was most important, and I got it done. Those other things, and so I even have a calendar where I sort of plan out and I go, I'm going to start on this then. I've really tried to be much more organized. Another one is everyday events, B-R-E. Every, notice the positives in our lives. We are so tuned to noticing the negatives, but there's the sunset, the flowers. Working with people with HIV-AIDS taught me this that they were the people that noticed the flowers. They saw the sunsets. They felt the wonderful feeling of you know, rain on their face and how fabulous that was. And then the other thing we know is share that with other people, that if something wonderful happens, share it with other people. And you know, th- this is a wonderful way to kind of go out the day. Tell people, like, that is a beautiful blouse. You know, people are wearing more red these days. You know, and so just say, beautiful colors. Um, you know, enjoy. There's wonderful. I was walking down to Visadero, and this, you know, it was like November something, and then this little Minnie Mouse came, you know, little kid in the Minnie Mouse costume, and it was so cute. It was so cute. Then it was obviously the Halloween costume, but you know how little kids, they, they want to wear their costumes more, and it was just, I noticed it. And it was just so adorable. She's got her little ears and a little red and white. You know, and it's just, I bet she sleeps in it. You know, it's just, and it was so cute. And I just remember that. And I shared it with people. So this, I think, is such an importance. So breathe, be realistic in setting your goals, and notice things that are good. And then share it with others. Because if you, we, we have done research that shows if you share something, it actually is more enhancing to you. So um, then... Also, this is really tricky. You have to notice when things go right. And this is something that I've had to focus on in my life. Okay, you'll notice the tire. See the tire? This is something, this is something I do every day. And have you ever noticed that you only have a flat tire when you want to go somewhere? You know, you go out to get in your car and there's a flat tire. Okay, so, and that's a hassle, because then you've got to figure out how to use the jack thing, and now they have new jacks, and it's complicated, and, and then there's the locking thingamabobbers, and you can't remember what you did with the locker thing that was to lock the thing so nobody could take the tire. So now, you, you know, it's a real challenge to do all this. So for me, what I do every time I go to my car, and this is true, I notice 
the tires are inflated. And I go, it's a great day. You know, this is like, <laughs> notice that this, notice when you get your mail if there's nothing from the IRS. A great day, especially on Fridays. I don't know why that is. Why Fridays? But it's, you know, this stuff comes on the weekend. You can't, you know, if you get, you know, only get bills on Fridays, great Friday. You know, it's just notice when things are going well. Nobody in, has a really bad cold in this room right now. And notice how you know, when you have a cold, you can't wait until you can breathe. Well, notice we're all breathing. And we're not, you know, it's, we're, we're in pretty good health. So notice that. Um, my stepmother used to tell me every day is a birthday because she woke up, you know. And she said, hey, in my 80s, this is a good thing. You know, so notice when things are going right. And that's a really part of everyday positive events. So when you see your tires, just think of me and go, yes. Except everyone's like they are flat, but you know that's okay. Then you get to ex- ex- then you get to see how strong you are. Uh, breathe. A acts of kindness. This is where you create positive events for other people. This is so very much fun. This is so very very easy to do. You know, I do this in um, in the supermarket. I promised a supermarket thing. Uh, sometimes when I am in the supermarket, I I don't have kids, so I have the little basket with the guy who's counting the items in my basket. And then there's the big basket that has the little kids and the huggies and all that stuff. And it's, you know, like 6.30. And I let the big basket that has the little kids go first. And it just makes me feel good. And the, um, the person who's the checkout person will go, Good Samaritan on aisle three. You know, it's like really great. It's just great. And people kind of go, oh, no, no. And you go, oh, no, no. Yes, go ahead. Let people in in traffic. Be nice. And some people will ignore you. They think you just did it by mistake. But, you know, and then you can just wave to people. It's amazing. You can just do this. You can just tell people they look good. When I'm, um, you know, I'm in line at the, the, you know, the airlines and people are all upset. You know, and we're going to be laid 20 minutes, and I, I'm, I'll turn to someone and go, well, it's better than being in the Donner Party. I mean, you know, hello, you know, we have to wait 20 minutes. You know, this is not a problem. Uh, so, you know, you can joke with people in line. You know, you can spend time looking at people. You can say, is there anybody I can cheer up in this line? Some people don't want to be cheered up, though. But anyway, so you can create positive events for other people. And again, this is you notice positive things, you create them in other people. It's good for you. The next letter in breathe is T for turning negatives around. This is where we take events in our lives that are negative, that are sad or depressing or problematic, challenging, and we find that silver lining. And this is a beautiful woman who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. That is always any diagnosis of a chronic, important illness is often a shock and it's upsetting. It challenges us, and that's real. But what we can do to manage the stress in our lives is take these events and see if we can find that silver lining, that something special that can add meaning to our lives. A really good example of this is Michael J. Fox. Many of you know that he was a very talented, very famous actor who was on television, had his own special show, and then he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And he has taken this event and found a silver lining and created the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And this has raised literally millions of dollars for Parkinson's research. And he's also testified to Congress and is really bringing that illness into the forefront so we're all more aware of it, dropping the stigma that's associated with it, and having it be something that we all care about. 
So as we each encounter negative events that can be very stressful, one of the things you can do is reframe that negative event. And the word reframe really means that. Think in your own home. Sometimes you have these old pictures that have frames that aren't very good. And the picture just looks a little dull. And that's what you can do with these events. If you take some time to reframe them, just as you would with that picture, if you take it to one of these shops where people really know how to reframe, and they put just the right mat on it and just the right frame, you take it home and it's brand new. It has more meaning. And you hang it on your wall and it looks like something very special, whereas before it was just a picture. Well, this is what we can do with negative events. Reframe them. Find that, that silver lining and turn negatives around. Uh, we also, H, we used to call it honor thy strengths. Honor, acknowledge your personal strengths. There's another option, which is humor. <laughs> Humor's really good, so you can choose. Uh, you know, it, just find some fun things that are happening or just think back to some really funny moment in a film that you really, really treasure. You know, the, the, there are funny things that happen. Collect funny things. Get Larson cartoons or whatever you enjoy. Um, you know, we, with our, a lot of our stress management groups, we start handing out just cartoons. You start handing it out. Like, it'll be on the seat when people come in. And they, um, you know, then they start bringing cartoons. You know, none, none of the negative humor. Just the funny stuff. Like, there's a Larson where they've got a dog scratching a man's stomach and the man is shaking his leg. You know, things like that are just fun. So either honor your strengths, that, that, those things that make you who you are, and really acknowledge it. Because, you know, I know some of you that are in this class, and each one of you has something really precious. Like someone sent me um, an email last night, you know, sharing with me a course that's going to be at another university. It was so nice. I'm just, and I, I just felt so good about that. And that's the strength that this person has. She's always sort of thinking of, I wonder if this would be helpful to someone. And then she shares that. And then E, breathe, end. This is at the end, easy to remember. End each day with gratitude. So instead, now that you've had this clarifying your values and all these good things, you aren't going to go, oh, I still didn't. No. You can think about the good things that happened. And it's a wonderful way to help you get to sleep, too. Instead of making lists of all the stuff you're supposed to do tomorrow. But if you have to do that, do that in your office. So that by the time you're you know, letting that bed support you, you can sort of think about all the wonderful things that happened today, the good people, the special things that, that made a difference in your life. So you can end each day with gratitude. You can note the positive steps that you're taking, uh, the things that are important in your life. Um, next Thanksgiving, it's a great day to call a few people, and nobody's in their office, so you can leave voicemail messages to tell them that you're thankful for them which is just another thing. Once a year, you can do that. But each night, you can sort of say, what am I thankful for? It's really counting your blessings. All the, so much of this goes back to what our grandmothers would say. You do positive accounting at the end of the day instead of going a post-mortem on your day of all the stuff you didn't get done. No, think of the things you did that were really good. You came to this class, which is really good. Or those of you watching the video, you're watching this video. You can keep a gratitude diary. A lot of people recommend that. Of Just make a few notes at the end of the day and write it down of what you're grateful for. And they've done studies on this. And it actually is a really, really good way to get into a more positive space and is associated with improved health. So it's a great idea. So 
these, this is sort of the keys to wellness. I've tried to weave them into the B-R-E-A-T-H-E, capturing a lot of the, the things that I've in, included in the class. So think about that. Take care and care for yourself. You know, put the mask on yourself first, and then you'll be better able to, um, you know, really help those around you. And if you do this clarifying of values, then you'll be able to look more at that portfolio and say, you know, I think I need to take a look at these roles. And maybe there's some things here I could download or I don't need to do so perfectly and so forth so that you can make a plan for yourself that will build your resilience, which, you know, so that when you're challenged, either, you know, in any of your domains, including in Alyssa Epple's lecture from last time, she talked about how people, she found that people with resilience were able to handle the caregiving more effectively. So we want to build up that resilience. So tonight we've talked about clarifying those values, what's really important to us, so that we live each, maybe each week, you can't always do it every single day, but every week or every month in a way that's consistent with what we really value in our lives. Manage our times so that we are not racing around trying to do more than we can, but really being present in doing the things that we do. Reframe all those negative events so that you can you know, really think more about those events um, and make them really something that you can value. And then create your personal path to wellness. Um, and so this is what I'd like to leave you with, is thinking through this B-R-E-A-T-H-E. Thank you so very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.